It's a small but highly motivated force that has set sail for the shores of Cuba, determined to overthrow tyranny and bring the blessings of Republican government and economic prosperity. Intel leads them to believe that they will be welcomed as liberators, that their arrival will, in fact, ignite a revolution that is already smoldering in the Cuban mountains. It doesn't work out quite that way. The Cuban natives are either indifferent or outright hostile to the ardent-hearted members of the expedition. Government troops quickly contain the landing, shoot up the invading force, and capture its leadership. The invasion, undertaken with high ideals and high hopes, is a complete disaster. If this sounds to you like 1961 and the Bay of Pigs, your knowledge of history is strong, but you're off by a century. The event we're exploring here took place 110 years earlier, when Cuba was still the property of Spain. The failed invasion was the fourth and final filibustering expedition of Narciso Lopez, a Spanish general turned rebel. It was one of the most prominent examples of a phenomenon that roiled Latin America from Cuba to Mexico to Nicaragua during the 1850s. Nowadays, filibustering is a technique used to delay and derail legislation. I don't know how it came to denote long-winded speeches and congressional gridlock. Filibuster, the word, is a corruption of a Dutch word meaning freebooter, as in buccaneer, as in a semi-piratical adventurer. And Narciso Lopez was a filibuster. Lopez came to a bad end, as did most leaders of filibustering expeditions, and we'll get to that in due course. But first, I want to explore what the phenomenon of filibustering was all about, and why there was such a filibustering mania in America in the 1850s. First of all, definitions. Filibustering is a privately raised and funded military expedition into a country with which America was at peace for the purpose of fomenting a revolution and or secession or a coup. The filibusters would then either run the country as an American loyal personal fiefdom or seek annexation to the United States. Historian Joseph Allen Stout says, Filibustering was spawned by the frontier and nourished by the spirit of expansionist adventurism that permeated all facets of American society during the 1850s. That's right in the X-ring. In my view, America caught filibustering fever from Texas independence and the Mexican War. There had been filibustering expeditions uh, earlier in the 19th century, um, even some filibustering activity trying to support some Canadian secessionists on the Canadian border in the 1830s. But it really caught fire in Latin America during the 1850s. And virtually every one of the filibustering expeditions turned out to be a, a monumental cock-up. But there's a case to be made that Texas was one giant and hugely successful filibuster. It's actually a fair bit more complicated than that, the Texas Revolution. But it surely must have seemed 
like a successful filibuster to people who saw a ragtag bunch of American interlopers who had successfully won their independence in 1836 despite a couple of major military setbacks like the Alamo and the massacre at Goliad. From their point of view, what couldn't liberty-loving, sharpshooting American badasses do? Americans won Texas independence in 1836. In 1885, Texas became part of the United States, which was an acquisition confirmed by Americans' victory in the U.S.-Mexican War of 1846-48. So why couldn't we repeat success like that in, say, Cuba or Sonora, Mexico or Nicaragua? It was an age of possibilities, like Stout said, an age of expansionist adventurism. America had jumped all the way across the continent to California starting in 1849 and 1850 with the gold rush. And uh, the concept of manifest destiny had just been coined. For many veterans of the Mexican War and of the California gold rush, filibustering offered the lure of adventure and the potential for riches, all while advancing an empire of liberty. It's important to emphasize that filibustering was illegal. It was a violation of the U.S. Neutrality Act. And it wasn't like the federal government was just giving it a wink and a nod and treating it as a, a fig leaf of plausible deniability for expansionist policy. Successive administrations were very strongly opposed to filibustering and made serious and often very effective efforts to interdict expeditions. The U.S. did not want to provoke another war with Mexico, and they didn't want to fight Spain over Cuba. In fact, President James K. Polk, who was an ardent expansionist, actually wanted to buy Cuba, and filibusters like Lopez would just muck up a transaction. Some of the support for filibustering came from slaveholders in the American South, who saw expansion into the Caribbean and Latin America as a means of expanding the culture and the economy of slavery, which was under increasing pressure in the United States. The Knights of the Golden Circle was a secret society dedicated to the creation of a slave empire, the top tier of which would be the states of the slave states of the American South, and it would center upon Cuba, hence the Golden Circle. The Knights were very enthusiastic about filibustering, but really they never got off the ground with it. By the time the Knights were founded in 1854, America was sliding into the crisis that would culminate in the American Civil War, and the KGC really pretty quickly turned its efforts towards secessionist politics and, and eventually insurrection, um, particularly in the state of Texas. Pro-slavery forces definitely stoked filibustering, and many filibusters were vocally supportive of the institution of slavery. Many of them came from southern states. Um, Lopez 
was an advocate for the preservation in, of slavery in Cuba and uh, several times expressed fears that, that Spain might abolish the institution. But I think it's kind of reductive to think of filibustering as an entirely pro-slavery project, or maybe it's more accurate to say uh, a distinctly sectional Southern nationalist and secessionist project. Uh, the historian Tom Chafin demonstrates pretty convincingly in an article titled Sons of Washington, Narciso Lopez, Filibustering, and U.S. Nationalism, 1848 to 1851, in the Journal of the Early Republic, that Lopez filibusters drew support from both North and South for really American nationalist reasons. And both in the North and the South, the biggest supporters of Lopez's filibustering expeditions were people with an interest in maritime trade, mercantile interests, not so much the planter class, which makes sense. Um, they were trying to take a, a, an island where uh, mercantilists and, uh, and maritime interests would, would be able to take advantage of trade. Interestingly, also, not all slaveholders were pro-filibuster, particularly when it came to Cuba. Louisiana planters really didn't want Cuba to become part of the United States um, or of some sectional slave empire because Cuban sugar plantations that would then compete on an equal footing with their own. And some feared that if Louisiana turned away from sugar to cotton, it would depress the market and hurt Alabama and other cotton-producing states. So, for economic reasons, not every slaveholding uh, political entity was interested in filibustering. And uh, there were also some pro-states' rights advocates uh, in the South who were opposed on principle to meddling in the internal affairs of sovereign states, not so much because of moral qualms, but because of the precedent it would set for their own. We have to remember that, that at this time, states' sovereignty, individual states' sovereignty, was uh, considered to be really on, a, on an equal level as the federal government. And, and the issue of... of who really held the the uh, the power in that relationship between the federal government and the states wouldn't be decided until the Civil War. So, uh, so some Southerners were concerned that if uh, if filibustering expeditions were successful, and the United States annexed these states, that it would set a precedence for federal intervention in southern states, which they were adamantly opposed to. Point being, as usual, it's complicated, and motives were often very mixed. So what happened to Lopez and his filibusters? Total disaster. Narciso Lopez was born in Venezuela, and had a very successful career in the Spanish military and government, and eventually became an influential figure in colonial Cuba. 
but as Chafin puts it, then he fell out of favor with the Spanish government and became increasingly bitter. By 1848, he was organizing a rebellion within Cuba. As is usually the case with rebellions, of course, someone talked, and top Spanish officials in Cuba found out about this planned expedition or uh, insurrection, and they summoned Lopez, who recognized that he'd been blown, so he fled to the United States, and there he started traveling to major cities like New York, Washington, Savannah, Georgia, New Orleans, and, uh, and other U.S. cities, raising financial support for a rebellion in Cuba and organizing an expeditionary force to invade Cuba and support this purported rebellion. Between 1849 and 1851, he raised four different expeditionary forces to invade Cuba. And he had pretty fair success in his recruiting. The filibusters who joined Lopez, uh, they didn't see themselves as pirates, although critics often called them that. Um, They saw themselves as heirs to the tradition of the American Revolution, sons of Washington, Adventurers, sure, they'd take that, but they also thought of themselves as soldiers for liberty. Many were veterans of the Mexican War. And uh, critics both at, the, at this time, in the uh, 1840s and 50s, and since, have dismissed the, the filibusters' stated lofty motives as cynical cover for just a, a, a desire for adventure and loot. And again, I'd, I'd argue that motives were mixed among individuals and within individuals. High-minded and less exalted motives can actually coexist pretty easily in the character of a young man with a rifle. We see that over and over in history. Also, among the, the filibusters were adventurers from Europe who had developed a taste for fighting for Republican causes during the revolutions of 1848, particularly in Hungary. Two of Lopez's filibustering expeditions, the first two, were thwarted by the United States government before they sailed. The The Navy interdicted them, um, seized or threatened to seize ships, and, uh, and gave some of Lopez's supporters' cold feet. Two of the expeditions actually reached Cuba, and the filibusters mixed it up with the island's Spanish army garrison. The filibusters seized the city of Cardenas in May of 1850, but the Cuban people did not rise up in support. Um, It was a relatively small fight. Lopez took about 30 casualties when Spanish reinforcements moved in and and threatened to surround his filibusters. So Lopez ordered his force back to their ship, and they shoved off. Lopez wanted to land in a different spot in Cuba, where he was quite sure people would actually rise up this time. But his men weren't having it, and they steamed for Key West, pursued by Spanish warships. 
They made it back to Key West ahead of the Spanish, and as soon as they landed, Lopez disbanded his force. Um, he was trying to avoid criminal prosecution under the Neutrality Act. Um, the feds actually tried him multiple times trying to get a conviction under the Neutrality Act, but the jury hung every time, so the government eventually gave up. Lopez didn't. He decided to form another expedition because he was hearing that revolution had broken out in Cuba for real this time. And no. Lopez and two filibuster regiments were captured on Cuban shores in this final expedition in 1851. And this time, he wouldn't escape. Now, the Spanish came down extremely hard on this expedition. 51 filibusters were executed by firing squad, and others were imprisoned in, in mining labor camps, which was in itself pretty much a death sentence. Lopez himself was garroted in the plaza in Havana before a very large crowd. And this was a particularly nasty way to die. The way they did it, um, they seated him against a, a wooden pole that had an iron collar on it, and they locked this iron collar around his neck. And the executioner twisted a screw tightening the collar, and just squeezed the life out of the man. Lopez did leave a legacy, though. Uh, the Cuban national flag that flies today is one that he designed for this republic that he died trying to create. The Lopez filibusters set a pattern that's been repeated over and over again throughout modern history. Profound overconfidence in the ability of a small force to win a quick victory. And overestimation of the revolutionary potential of the target population. Those two things equal disaster. And it wasn't just a, a, an American phenomenon. Um, the Jameson Raid in South Africa is considered by many to be a filibustering Expedition. This was in 1895-96, uh, and the Bay of Pigs that uh, that we talked about at the the beginning of the podcast could be looked at as a as a filibustering expedition. Although this time the the U.S. government really was kind of using it as a as a stalking horse. Uh, che Guevara's fatal attempt at insurgency in Bolivia was a filibustering expedition, ended the same way. So we've got capitalists and communists alike staging filibusters for a hundred years and more. I guess there's something irresistible about the impulse, and it says something about people's ability to delude themselves and uh, and to attempt big things in the face of gigantic odds, even though history would tell them that it always ends badly. So in the next episode, 
we'll explore the weird and wild career of the most infamous filibuster of them all, the gray-eyed man of destiny, William Walker, and the filibuster war in Nicaragua. I want to thank the Frontier Partisan patrons who support the podcast and the Frontier Partisans blog. Rick Schwertfeger, David Rolson, Paul McNamee, Matthew Free Live Free, Christopher West, Jerry Nunnally, Alan Godseff, Bob Dice, Chaz Clifton, Wade McKnight, Mike McIver, Harry Kaiser, and Ash. I really appreciate that support. It's what enables me to uh, pay the hosting fees, etc., and, uh, and put together research materials on uh, on these interesting and sometimes obscure subjects. The uh, last time I ordered a book at Polina Springs Bookstore here in Sisters, Oregon, my favorite independent bookstore, the uh, the clerk there who I've known for well, more than 25 years, she said, where did you find that one? And that's kind of a constant refrain. So um, I appreciate the support that enables me to, to find these strange, obscure pieces of research material. If you'd care to uh, throw down a few clues to support Frontier Partisans, you can do so at our Patreon page. The link's in the show notes. And we'll see you down the trail.